I want to begin today with a question to answer silently. What is the most success you've had growing something? Maybe it's flowers or vegetables from your garden. I think if my husband were here, he was here last service, he would say the grass in our front yard. He's been working hard on that. I am not a big gardener myself at this stage in life, but I certainly appreciate the fruits of other people's labor. <laughs> my neighbor's lavender bush that is in full bloom right now, the beautiful scents of the rose garden along Lake Harriet, the produce growing in our own backyard of the church here. You should check it out. And my favorite in summertime, fresh, ripe, juicy fruit. There is nothing like juicy peaches or strawberries or mangoes on a hot summer day. We marvel at growth, don't we? There's a certain satisfaction that comes from having grown something ourselves or as most of us experienced in elementary school, watching those first little sprouts burst through the soil in plastic cups after providing just the right amount of sunlight and water. We marvel at growth. An alcoholic celebrates his 20th year of sobriety. A busy parent adopts healthier lifestyle habits and loses weight. A family member chooses to forgive instead of harboring bitterness. A student navigates all the challenges of a new school. The human capacity for growth is remarkable. Just look at any discipline that examines how people grow. Psychology, ethics, education, neuroscience, parenting. And while each one may have a different take on how people grow, all, hu all agree humans are wired for growth and development. To be sure, there are some constraints on how we grow. Our personality, genetic makeup, early childhood experience of trauma, our support system, all of these factors affect the extent to which or the pace by which we grow. But we can grow. And oh, how we long for growth. The desire for transformation lies deep within every human heart. It's why people join gyms go to therapy, listen to motivational speakers, or make New Year's resolutions. It's why James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones, quickly hit the New York Times bestseller list. I'm sure if I took time right now, we could each list several ways we all want to see growth in our lives. We're starting a sermon series today called Cultivate, where we're using the metaphor of growing fruit to help us understand growing in our faith or spiritual growth. And it's not just because it was the dead of winter when I was planning this series and the thought of fresh, sun-ripened produce sounded amazing. It's because the Bible often uses the image of plants or vines or trees or fruit or growing to describe our growth in faith, our life with God. Here are just a few examples. Notice how they are all illustrated by this painting that is hanging in our lobby. David in Psalm 1. Blessed are those who delight in God's way. They are like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Jesus on his last night with his friends before he died, urged them, 
I am the vine, you are the branches, remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Doesn't that sound like fruit our world could use right now? Doesn't that sound like fruit you'd like to see grown in your own life right now? And it must be grown in us because God does not wave a magic wand when we come to faith and instantly turn us into people of character. When we choose to follow Jesus and put our trust in him, we will still have our personality, our habits, our memories, our ways of thinking that need to be cleaned up. That's why there's so much instruction in the Bible on how to live after we've come to faith. Becoming a Christian isn't an ending point. It's a starting point. The verb cultivate was originally used to refer strictly to agricultural growth, as in preparing land for crops or gardening. Gradually, however, its meaning broadened to include becoming proficient in any quality or skill. Cultivate to nurture or grow or make better. What I love about this word is that since it originated from agriculture, its meaning has maintained a sense of reticence to claim all the credit ourselves. As any gardener will tell you, while they certainly do their part, they also maintain a sense of humility. They don't actually cause the plants to grow. It doesn't all depend on them. There are elements outside their control, like weather. Cultivating growth means we tend to what is growing, but we cannot actually make seeds grow. We can only create the conditions in which growth can occur. And I think that's one reason why the Bible uses this metaphor so often for our own growth. Because truly growth of any kind involves a partnership with God. Certainly, we must do our part, when, but whatever we do is not sufficient to cause growth. God himself must be at work in our lives. God himself is the one who causes growth to occur. Each week in our series, we'll be looking at a different aspect of growth. Today, we're looking at the fruit of growth. What is the goal of spiritual growth? What are we going for here? Next week, we'll look more at the process of growth. And the following weeks, what nourishes us in our growth? And what are some common threats to growth? And the goal is not just to learn about growth, but to actually grow in our relationship with God. So each week, you'll find an insert in your program. It's just one way you can try to connect what's happening here on Sunday with the rest of your week. This week, because it's the start of a series, we've got a recommended reading list as well. Use it if it's helpful for you, either individually or if you want to grab a group of friends and do a small group Bible study together this summer. With that introduction aside, let's spend the remainder of our time looking at the first aspect of cultivating a relationship with God. What's the goal? What's the fruit? What are we seeking to grow? And, it, and the message is really pretty simple. It's just two ideas. And each can be summarized with an image. We're going to look at each image, and then we'll see what that means for us today. You with me? Image number one. 
a child. In addition to the image of fruit or crops, the Bible often uses for growing in our life with God that of a baby or child, maturing, growing. Several places in the Bible talk about growing up in him. Here's just one. Ephesians 4, 12 to 16. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity and become mature. Then we will no longer be infants. Instead, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. You don't need to be a Greek scholar to get the point. Paul wants these people to grow. He wants these people who are new in their faith to grow up in Christ. Becoming a Christian is like becoming a baby, being born again and learning all over how to walk, how to talk, how to think, how to behave, how to trust, what's important, how to love. You and I are simply not meant to be the same year after year. We can grow, and the goal of growth is Christ-likeness. Here's one beautiful little reference to this in the book of Galatians uh, chapter 4. The Apostle Paul is writing to a group of new believers in the city of Galatia, church he helped found, and towards the end of the letter, he writes these words. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And I just have to say, as if Paul knew anything about the pains of childbirth. (laughs) But actually, he is using a powerful image here, and he's doing a wordplay. He's being intentional. He's saying, I want this so badly for you, as badly as a mother in labor wants that baby to be born. This is how badly Paul desires this for this little church. And here's what he desires. Christ formed in you. That word formed is the Greek word morphu, from which we get the word morph, which is a gradual process of transformation in the very essential nature of a person. So essential, in fact, that this is the word used to describe the development of an embryo or baby inside a mother's body. Now think about that for a moment. Paul is saying That just like a fetus or baby gestates within the life of a mother, so too Jesus Christ is to be formed in our lives, that his very essence would be grown in us. Some of you may know that our children's pastor, Bethany Lundgren, had a baby boy on Monday. They were actually here first service, so you might have snuck a peek at him. Look at that little hair. This is little Ronan, or Ro, as I believe they're going to call him. He's adorable. Now, here's a picture of Bethany, which she graciously gave me permission to use on her last day in the office before she started maternity leave. This is just five days before little Roe was born into the world. Now, it's pretty obvious. There is a little baby being formed in her. Now, through the power of technology today, it's a little blurry, but here is a 3D ultrasound of little Roe in utero. Look at that form. The technology is powerful, but so is the image Paul is using. 
Just as a fetus or baby is delicately fashioned in the womb, so too is Jesus Christ to take form inside us, to be shaped within us. His very essence is to take on life in us. Our lives are incubators for growing Jesus' nature in us. Can you imagine what it would be like to live or work or worship along someone whose very nature had been formed by Christ, the one full of grace and truth? Can you imagine how that, w- how that would affect the cause of Christianity in the world when those who claim to follow Jesus actually live like him, actually look like him? In a separate letter, Paul adds to this illustration when he says we are to be conformed, sum morphizo, to the image of his son. Sum, with, to have the same form as another. We are to be to Christ as an image is to the original. The goal of spiritual growth is Christ-likeness, not looking like your parent or your teacher, or your mentor, or your pastor, though I hope all of those are good models for you in Christ-likeness. But our goal is looking like Jesus, becoming more like him every day, not just in our actions, but in our thoughts, in our attitudes, even our desires. It's not as if we'll all become little Jesus clones and look and talk the same. God honors our individuality. We'll talk more about that later. But the goal is to look more like him every day. And here's the thing. This is not burdensome. It is actually quite fulfilling. Which leads me to the second image for today. A river. To say that Jesus' way of life is fulfilling really shouldn't be a hard sell if you've come to faith. Part of coming to faith in in Christ is saying, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. You seem to offer the most plausible, compelling, and winsome way on how to live life. I choose to follow you. Now, if we have come to believe that about Jesus, why then wouldn't his way of life be a good way to live? Don't we believe he indeed is the bread of life and the living water? Jesus, in fact, claimed this about himself. One time when he was teaching at the Festival of Tabernacles, right when the ceremonial water cup was about to be held up, he stood up and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now to appreciate the image of a river, you have to remember Israel is a desert. In a desert, river is life, it's health. Where the river flows, life will flourish. Where the river dries up, life will die. Jesus is saying here that just as the desert needs the water to thrive, so too we need Jesus' way to flourish. Jesus' way is the good way to live. He told us in another place in John 10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. We don't seek Jesus' character in our lives because we have to. We seek it because it's nourishing. 
It's real life. It's the good way to live. So, child embryo. God wants to see the very form of Jesus fashioned in us. And river, this way of life is not only possible, it is what you and I long for most. It's the only way of life we will find deeply satisfying. So, what does this all mean for us? What am I asking us to do? Well, I'm asking us to pause. Let's reflect for a moment now on the garden of our own soul. Open the door, step out in the yard, take a look at your inner garden. What is growing there? Maybe you see some good fruit growing. Maybe you've experienced joy or hope or peace when it really doesn't make sense to with all you have going on right now. Thank God for that. Give him praise for that. Tell him you want to see that keep growing. Maybe as you look around inside your heart, you also see places in your life where you don't look like Jesus, where his form doesn't match what's in your life. Maybe it's a habit you're trying to change and feel powerless to do so. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by fear and find it hard to trust in a God who is for you. Maybe you just don't feel a sense of purpose or meaning we see in Jesus' life. Maybe when you think about Jesus and how he loved people, truly loved them, not just by being nice, but by doing what was best for them at great cost to himself, you know you have a long way to go. One mentor I know always asks himself two diagnostic questions to see if he's growing in grace, growing more like Jesus. Am I becoming more easily discouraged? Or am I becoming more easily irritable? Maybe those will be helpful indicators to you about what's growing in your garden. I know those have been helpful for me. Now, if you want a really accurate assessment of what our growing edges are, places in which we can look more like Jesus, we could have the courage to ask someone who spends a lot of time with us. Ask a spouse or family member or coworker or good friend. If there's trust between you and it's understood this is for your mutual benefit, the person should be honest. And if they are, you might be surprised to hear what they have to say. We all have blind spots. The heart is deceitful above all things. In fact, as we'll see later on in this series, that's part of the role of community. That's part of how we actually love one another, is to say, hey, this is not the life God wants for you, and I care about you. I want to see what's best for you, and it is not this. And then, once we see the place where there's a gap between Jesus' form and our form, between what he is like and what we are like, we ask God to help us. We say, God, we are not who we want to be. Would you breathe your Holy Spirit on us and change us, recreate us? Galatians 5, which I mentioned earlier, which talks about the fruit of the Spirit, comes right after this plea Paul gives that Christ be formed in these new believers. And in it, Paul urges those same people several times. You can look it up. Walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Yes, we do our part. Galatians 6 is going to say we reap what we sow. But like gardening, we can only do our part. 
We can't make it grow. That's God's job. That's why I was so deeply encouraged this week when I was preparing for this series and Devin reminded me it's Pentecost Sunday today. How fitting. Today, as we prayed in our Pentecost litany, we celebrate the fact that God did not leave us alone. He has sent his Holy Spirit, God himself, to dwell within us. Those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, those of us who have chosen to follow him, have the Holy Spirit residing in us. This was one of Jesus' final promises to us. The night before he died, John 14, 17 and 18, he, the Holy Spirit, will live with you and be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. Thanks be to God. We have a direct connection with God. He takes us by the hand and walks us step by step. In fact, one of the names of the Holy Spirit is the paraclete, the one called alongside. He leads us and guides us in this process. Through him, we have access to God's power. We are not gardening alone. Yes, we will get our hands dirty in the soil, and we should. We will do our part. But as every gardener knows... There's always an element of mystery when we're talking about growth. There's a reason it's called spiritual growth, because it requires the spirit to produce the growth. This is also why the process of each person growing is so unique to each person. God, the gardener, is not a mass producer. He is a hand crafter. Yes, there are common elements that can help us all grow, and we'll be talking about those in this series, but the process by which we grow, the elements that nourish us, the pace at which we grow, even the extent to which Christ can be formed in us are all impacted by who God has made us to be, the experiences we have had, and the environment in which we find ourselves. I hope that that is freeing to you. It's not going to look like it does for others. What is nourishing to one plant will kill another. While it's true, others can be helpful in modeling for us how to grow. The only one who can really teach us is God himself. He knows what we need, and he will meet us where we are. Because God always meets us where we are. That is a common theme throughout the entire Bible. One writer put it like this. Genuine brokenness pleases God more than pretend spirituality. He knows where, what's going on in us, so we might as well come clean before him. So let's start today. Let's ask God to make us aware of the ways in which he wants to form us. If it's helpful, take that little brown card in your program, put it someplace you'll see this week, and ask God to meet you in those places no, we will never get it right until we die. We will never perfectly match the form of Jesus. Until our final breath, we are in a process of growth. We are under construction. There is a great story about Ruth Graham, the late Billy Graham's wife, who died back in 2007. And years before she died in 2007, she had already chosen the words she wanted engraved on her tombstone. As the story goes, one day she'd been driving through a construction zone, we can relate in Minneapolis in the summer, 
for several miles. It was along uh, lots of detours, narrow lanes, numerous lane changes, slow traffic. At the end of the construction zone, she saw this sign and thought it fitting for her tombstone. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> the construction on our lives, the ways in which we will grow, will continue until the day we die. And we must have patience with one another. In fact, that's the first definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. It bears with. It puts up with one another. We must be patient with others and with ourselves because God sure is. God, the unseen gardener alongside us, is ever patient with us. As John Ortberg says, our life is God's project, not ours. This is God's garden he's growing. He has many tools at his disposal, and he is never in a hurry. He never gets discouraged by how long it takes, and he delights in every time we, we grow. He has in mind the end product of what we will become, and he is already working on it. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. We all, with unveiled faces, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit. God wants this growth more than we do. And he has supplied the resources to help us. All we have to do is join him. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may your word find fertile soil in our hearts for our sake, because your way will indeed live to living water flowing in our lives, and for your glory, that a watching world might be drawn to you, the living water. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.